Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Before I welcome the guest for today, I wanted to make mention of how exciting it is to find out that we have a lot of listeners all over the world, specifically right now, besides the United States and Australia and Canada, other English-speaking places. We have a big audience in Lithuania, Uruguay, and Croatia. All of that is very exciting to me. And as I've asked for in the past, if you live in one of those places or another place around the world where this podcast speaks to you for one reason or another, please be in touch with us at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com and let us know what that's about so we understand. And also, if there's more that you would like to hear about that would be helpful to you and to the people around you to hear about, please let us know a subject that is of importance to you or that seems to be compelling because it's something that's affecting a lot of the people near you. So for today, I am very excited to introduce India Oxenberg. This will be the first of two conversations I have with her. This one this week and the next one next week. We've known each other a while. I've known the Oxenberg family for a while. India Oxenberg is a successful film producer, writer, and actress. She's also the daughter of our previous guest, Catherine Oxenberg, who I worked with when she was just finding out that India was involved in Nexium which is this now infamous multi-level marketing company that was later exposed. And what was exposed in it was that there was this level within this organization that was about having master-slave relationship and about women being branded. But there's so much to talk about that is besides that, that is so much about the control and the manipulation. And when I first met with Catherine and then met with India, Keith was still out and about, Keith Ranieri, the one who developed Nexium. And now he's in jail. What's so interesting about that is that there's still some people who are loyal to him, even after all that he's done, even after the charges against him. That's actually not uncommon. It's like people saying they're not quite ready to lose their leader, the person who they had come to see as their anchor to the world. While in Nexium, India was introduced to the cult's inner circle and was groomed to be a sexual partner of Nexium's founder and leader, Keith Ranieri, who I just mentioned. In 2020, she published the book Still Learning, a memoir, she produced and starred in the documentary series Seduced, Inside the Nexium Cult, which I'm also featured in, which I was very happy to be a part of. And it was put together by wonderful people, Cecilia and Inbal. You have to check them out. They're wonderful, wonderful documentarians and filmmakers. And it was a very 
tense and intense time while India was really documenting how she transitioned out of Nexium and tried to get a sense of a connection to her mind back. That's an arduous process and a long process. And she's here today to start talking to you about her experiences. Here's India now. I am very excited to have India Oxenberg with me today on the show. And I know we have a lot to talk about. Probably the best place to get started is to have you introduce yourself, who you are, what you're doing these days, and the reason that we're talking today on the show. All right. Well, first of all, my name is India Oxenberg. I am a writer and a producer and an activist. I'm a national ambassador for RAIN. It's the premier anti-sexual violence hotline that is available for people. And so I've been doing a lot of work with them this summer, which I've been really grateful for, as well as working as a producer for STARS for the network. So that has been a really exciting change in career for me and has really given me a lot of motivation to just continue to study and learn and explore the field of coercion, abuse, and also cults and things that have become very familiar and personal to me. And why we're here together is because we work together on the series Seduced, but we also work together in a therapeutic sense off camera. And I just feel really grateful for the work that we've done together. And I think it has been really helpful for more people than I had expected who resonated with the story of um, Nexium. And I think from there, I've kind of just wanted to expand my horizons and my career and focus more on activism and what it is that I can do or how I can lend my voice to certain causes and bring awareness to an issue that I really think a lot of people are either unaware of or are too uncomfortable to learn about. So I've been trying to promote these concepts in a more mainstream way so that people can relate and identify and they don't just go, oh, that's just about cults or that's just, you know, for people who are naive or uneducated, when the reality is that I think anyone is susceptible to manipulation. If you have a vulnerability, you're susceptible in my opinion. So it's just something that I've become really passionate to talk about. And in doing so, it's given me a lot of clarity and healing. And obviously I still have my challenging days because I'm a human being too. But I think just in the process of speaking out and coming forward about these pretty challenging topics, um, it's helped me really just integrate and kind of understand the why and what happened. And I feel enormously different than I did a couple years ago. Let's just say that. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that introduction. And I want to be able to go back to a couple things. First, if you can expand just for the listeners a little bit more about RAIN, because it is an incredible resource. I love that you are the national ambassador. One of them. One of many. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll go back to talking about you specifically. Okay. So RAIN is the National Sexual Assault Hotline and Education About Sexual Violence. 
And they have tons of resources for one, an anonymous hotline, which you can call. And you can also visit their website, which is rain.org. And there's a lot of things on there that really help people speak to survivors, to understand the appropriate questions to ask, also where to go if something has happened to you and you don't know who to speak to. Because I think that's something that most survivors experience is that just utter shame and feeling of being alone and isolated with something that they don't know how to process. And that is really the worst thing that you can do is to shy away from a safe place and a safe resource to go to, because then you're just stuck with all of these uncomfortable feelings. And so my work with Rain has really developed over these past couple of months. I reached out to them and I was really just a big fan of what they do. And I started to share their content on my social media and I got in contact with them and I, I was like, how can I work with you guys? Like, how can I participate? So we started this back to school campaign project, which was how to bring awareness to the red flags that may exist on college campuses for people who are newly independent and maybe out of their parents' homes for the first time. And the reason why I was so passionate about this subject is because when I was 19 years old was when I was recruited into Nexium. And I was at a crossroads in my life where I was really looking for structure and direction, and I trusted these people who seemed like authority figures in the world of success and entrepreneurship, and that was what they were selling at the time through this program called Executive Success Programs, which was their consumer front product. And so when I was speaking with the other leadership at Rain, I told them that I wish that there were things that I would have known when I was 19 years old before entering the world to look for. Like, what are those things that maybe a 19, 20, 18 year old should be aware of so that when they go into an institution like a university or on a campus, they're not blindsided by things that could easily be avoided. And so we started this back and forth project of creating an article that gave seven points, basically seven red flags to look for, when you go back to school. And I used my story as sort of a cautionary tale and template to show the relationship between love bombing or gaslighting or many of the things that you and I have spoken about mm-hmm. as a, like a cautionary tale. Like these are the things to look for. These are the things that I didn't know. And, and I hope that this helps you become more equipped and also keeps you safer and keeps your friends safer. And so we started to work on that, which I'm really, really proud of because that's my first article that I have written and published. And I've brought a bunch of other survivors to Rain who really want support in their own activism and also from other cults, including LDM, which we've spoken about, because I trust them and I know that their hearts are in the right place. And it's difficult to find charities, sadly, that really do practice what they preach. And so I am very cautious about the types of organizations that I enter in now, because I don't just jump in right away. I do a lot of research beforehand and I've learned from my prior mistakes (laughs) that um, you have to be careful because people do find positions of power where they can, you know, manipulate and use people even within the charity system. And so that's something that I am very aware of now. And so my cooperation with Rain has been thoroughly vetted. (laughs) 
And I think that they're a great resource for anybody who is either struggling with the effects of sexual violence on themselves or sees a loved one that is struggling and doesn't know how to help them or communicate. So that's a little bit about RAIN and, and what I've been doing with them. Quite amazing. Going back to a couple of things that you said, and then we'll move forward. One of the things is that, yes, people don't necessarily know how often this happens because people don't necessarily want to talk about the experiences that they've had. Sometimes they also are worried about being the first person. They don't want to be the lone voice. They don't want to be the first voice. And so the more the people out there who have had these experiences can find others who want to speak with them or who have already spoken, then they can join in and lend their voice. So if you are at all worried that you're the only one who's had that experience, whatever that is, that's never the case. And it just means that you haven't found them talking about it publicly, or you haven't found where they've talked about it publicly or where they've tried to, or, you know, so you will never be the only one. That's such a good point. I feel that for myself. I was so terrified to talk about my experiences in Nexium before for multiple reasons. Not only like the blackmail collateral piece that was in place because of DOS, but also just because I felt so much shame and, and guilt and just a lot of judgment about myself and the choices that I had made and, and also the choices that I felt I didn't make and that I had been coerced into making. And so I think for me, speaking out was really a big leap of faith because there hadn't been that many people talking about their experience in cults in a mainstream way. It had sort of been more like it pops into the news as clickbait and then disappears. And there was like not a lot of other information out there. And in, in, in my view, it just wasn't a conversation that I think people were thinking deeply about. I think they were thinking more like, that's ridiculous. That's for a certain type of person. And that's not for me. And that's the message that I really wanted to kind of change. And I do think that survivorship is huge because even just being able to talk to one other person who understands and can relate to you can take away so many of those negative feelings of isolation and shame and just makes you feel more human. Like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm just like everybody else in a certain sense, which is really nice sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, even when people see posts on social media where someone says, you know, don't you hate it when blah, 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 or, you know, all the times I've done such and such. And you think, oh, I'm not the only one who's, who's had that thought, done that thing. Yeah. And with the billions of people on the planet, again, you will never be the only one, no matter how strange your story is. Isn't that nice? Right? <laughs> right? It is so nice. With all the stories that I've heard, there's always something more out there. And so it'll never be the weirdest thing. And I think also, even like with the former cult member support group that I do now online, what I get to see, even if it's in person or if it's online, and I tell the people who are participating this, that's it's one of my favorite parts, where people are telling their story, even if it's from a different group, even if the belief system was different, even if it came in the form of a relationship rather than a cultic group they will talk about things that have such universal themes that everyone else is nodding their heads and going, mm, yes, uh-huh, I know, mm -hmm, me too. And the whole Me Too movement makes such sense just in terms of the phraseology of that, me too, because there's something so incredibly powerful about me too. And again, because sometimes you can 
get distracted by some of the details. It could be that your group believes in UFOs or whatever it is, or conspiratorial theories or something. But the theme of control and manipulation and and having your power extracted from you and being deceived, I mean, these are these are across the board. And so it's really nice to not get caught in the weeds of, well, we didn't wear orange robes, so it must not be, right? Right, right. <laughs> but beyond all that, to really zoom out and see the themes that are a thread. And just like a thread, it's very unifying and it's really nice. And you don't get to experience that unless you hear from other people or unless you connect with other people. So organizations are, are a wonderful way to connect. They are. And I'm sure you see that all the time. What's your support group called? So it's just from my office. So, you know, if people look up Rachel Bernstein, LMFT, they'll see, you know, that there is a support group. Also people who have loved ones who are involved in groups or who have recently come out who are saying, I don't know how to kind of understand what they need or anticipate what they might be needing. And can you, the people who have been through this, help guide me? So there's a nice interplay between the the former members as well as the families and friends, which is really, I think, important. So important. It makes me like teary because it's so, that's such a challenging place to be. And I, I think about my mom and like all the things that she had to learn and, and understand and research about about cults, about high control groups, about PTSD and all of these things that she has had to educate herself on in order to really be a support system to me too in coming out of Nexium. And it's not not only therapy, it's daily. <laughs> it's like somebody who is there for you, who understands what you went through is so valuable because otherwise it scares them and it scares you when you can't communicate and, and it feels like you're speaking two different languages. And I remember even just in some of our therapy sessions, how challenging it was to just bridge that gap of this is what I've now been programmed to believe. It's hard for the other person to understand that perspective, but you're in a closed loop of thinking. And so you can't really like get out of it. And it's, it's scary and it's scary for your loved ones too. So I'm so glad that you have that group for them because sometimes it's that very person that's like the only person that's going to actually be able to say the thing that you need to hear, but you don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> but you need, but it's, it comes from a loving place. It just happens to be maybe against all of the things that you are taught to believe. And that's a hard place to be. It is a hard place to be. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that particular point about a family member trying to kind of get it right. I think that sometimes when people have been involved in a cult or they're recently out, they're somehow expected to be experts about manipulation and coercion and undue influence. They only know about their experience, but they don't understand. Not at all. Not at all. And having the terminology here, you know, here you're in this position where you're supposed to educate someone and you're thinking, I haven't even quite landed yet. My head is still all over the place and I don't know how to explain it. And so that's a very hard thing. Sometimes I'll just tell families, like you're saying, to do their research, to find out sometimes they are going to be more educated about the techniques that were used. And then they can hear their loved one talk about what they went through. And then they have a frame of reference. They can say, oh, that's this. 
Right. And actually that's comforting because when the person actually uses the right words, then you feel like they're actually listening to you and that they're, they've taken the time to understand things that were maybe were, were the most important thing to you in your life at one point. That means a lot. And, and just to have somebody say like, oh, when they, for example, when they did the EMs, did you feel like you were being manipulated or did you feel like you were being helped? Like even just a, que- even just a question like that, where it comes from a genuine curiosity rather than like, I already know the answer and you were being fucked with and you are an idiot that you even thought that that was good. Like that is not the right way to approach the conversation. For me, it was all about feeling respected because I already felt so much shame and humiliation that the last thing that I wanted was the person that I was trying to rebuild trust and love with to be criticizing me. That was something that I just couldn't handle. And I would immediately get defensive or self-protective or just shut down and, and disconnect. And there was a while where I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. I just thought that I was defending my perspective. I didn't see it as this is me really just avoiding very uncomfortable feelings. So it took me a while to feel okay with that, but it really helps when the person is open. And, and, but that takes like kind of looking at your own fears and needing to get it right or needing to have it all resolved in one hour is impossible. (laughs) Yes, it is for most things. Uh, You know, there are so many terms that I think about with Nexium, like ESP and even EM. EM has always been interesting to me because when I am meeting with someone, I have this little shorthand that I've developed over time. And EM to me means emotional manipulation. Wow. No way. That's how you, that's what you write. And I always thought that was fascinating, right? That EM means something else, but maybe it doesn't, right? And so what does it mean in Nexium? Exploration of meaning. Sounds creepy. Makes me itch. But but really, really, like for a long time, the EM was such a big part of my life. And it was something that I did regularly. And uh, something that was incredibly damaging to me. And I had no idea that that was so there had to be some forgiveness that I had for myself for putting me putting myself in a situation that endangered me both mentally and physically but really yes physically (laughs) in, in a lot of ways but I really do feel like the emotional damage that I experienced is the thing that I struggle with the most now like the physical things are all things that I've been working on for the past couple of years to repair whether it was my hormones or my body weight or my muscle or even just like my digestive system my nervous system all of those things are physical and those have been kind of even though big challenges to try and get a whole handle on and repair easier than the emotional blocks or boundaries that I have inside and and that's been like some of my lowest points have been when I haven't really felt like I could handle that. And I would just go straight into overwhelm or a really heightened state of fight or flight. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, what is wrong with my brain? And I feel like I've said that a million times in these past couple of years. And I, I just recently have started to feel differently about that, that it's okay. Whatever I'm feeling is okay. And that it's more about like leaning into it than just resisting and rejecting it. And I know that's easier said than done because sometimes these feelings can feel just 
freaking terrifying <laughs> and just big and explosive. And they come with a lot of memories and other emotions attached to them and even physical pain. So I do feel like that's really the hardest part is getting yourself back into a place where you feel comfortable with your emotions and where and I know from for me and with Nexium, also just trusting my instincts and feeling myself inside. There was so, so much time where I just wasn't there and there was nobody. I was only basing my decisions on whether it was going to upset someone or please them. So there was no India in there. There was no like me making a decision like, oh, I really love barbecue. Like, no, I was a vegetarian because I had to be a vegetarian or I was on a restricted diet because I was commanded to be on a restricted diet. There was no free will or choice. And I think that's something that's really hard for people to understand, especially if they've never experienced a controlling relationship or group. I'm sure you see this a lot, but like I have a, a partner who it was not in a cult and was not, you know, sexually abused as a child or as an adult. And he has had to really work hard to kind of understand what it might feel like to not know yourself and to have sort of a slight vacancy and also have to kind of go back in time pre-Nexium to be like, what do I like? Like, what did I like before the cult? And sometimes I even find myself asking him questions like, silly, this is a really weird example, but I feel like you'll understand this. But so Patrick, my partner, he is a chef and he makes pizza specifically. That, that's his thing. Sometimes when we travel, he'll take me to try all sorts of different foods, mostly like Italian American or whatever, whatever regional food that area we're in, we'll try that because we like it and he's a foodie and so am I. But we'll explore and I'll try things. And then I find myself asking him questions like, why do I like this? What about this do I like? Because I know I like this food. I know I like this pizza more than the last pizza. And he'll be like, well, there's a lot of things about that that you've told me before that makes this decision make sense, like why you would like that or not. So for one, he'll say, well, it's naturally leavened. Like it's made, uh, the pizza is made a certain way. And so I'm learning to like identify the nuances of what I like and what I don't like. But sometimes I need help remembering the things that I like because I've spent so much time kind of defaulting to somebody else. And it's really nice to kind of feel like, oh yes, I like this because I like this kind of pizza and I like this kind of topping and I like this kind of preparation and I like this kind of style and this kind of region. And it's like, I'm getting to know myself in a different way that I didn't really have the opportunity to do so for so many years. Wow. Perfect example, because you're talking about something basic. I mean, it's not like the, it's existential thinking. It's about preference. It's about your senses. It says so much about how in such a primal way you were detached from the self. And it's reminding me of this idea of a thread that I was talking about. It's interesting. I haven't thought about it this way before. But what Patrick is doing is he's helping this thread go back and loop towards you. Like you're getting back connected to yourself because it became frayed and detached. And he's sort of nodding it and back, attaching it back to you. So you get to see who you are and were, and actually still always had been. 
but I had lost her. <laughs> right. You had lost her. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I do feel that way. And like, there's certain things that are new, new things that I've never really tried that I was either too afraid to explore, or I had attached a lot of negative association to because of the Nexium indoctrination, to be honest, like they were really, really critical about a lot of things. And so I've had to undo a lot of that and find my own opinion separate from that junk. And then also what you're saying is like close that loop of who I was prior with who I am now, but still being open. And so it's kind of cool, but it's, it is an exploration. It's like, I get to really get to know myself again. And sometimes I'm frustrated by that because I'm like, why don't I just know? <laughs> why don't I just know what I want? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, well, I haven't really thought about it yet. And I, I haven't really checked in with myself. And sometimes it's easier to default to someone else. Well, it's easier. It's safer. When you learn to not trust yourself, which is what an emotional manipulator will do because they want you to be dependent, it's not even so much that you don't know. It's just that you're afraid of being the one to decide because you're going to make the wrong decision. That is how I feel so much. <laughs> and that's like one of my kryptonites. I just, I, I still feel that, like that remnants of those beliefs, um, especially in really big decisions, like life decisions. And I'm so worried about either upsetting somebody else or making the wrong choice and being punished or having them resent me. And I was talking about this with my mom yesterday, actually. And I just felt like I still hear Allison's voice in my head sometimes of you don't know yourself. You don't know who you are. You don't know yourself. And I'm just like, yes, I do. And I feel so angry that like that voice is still there and that I doubt myself often and that I don't trust myself in certain areas and I'm trying to undo that but I still feel the remnants of that programming okay so for a frame of reference so you're talking about Allison Mack just so you know who people know who that is and so I'll just do that I'll sort of translate as you go um, so that you don't have to stop yourself when you're telling a story so I'm wondering if it can help if when you hear her voice saying you don't know if you can start the phrase with I need for you not to know not you don't know but I need for you not to know oh right and then you can see the manipulation right because it's not about you not knowing she just didn't want you because she had learned that it's not like she originated that thought I mean she was right. in the group too right I didn't know that that was a thing that manipulators did to destabilize you so a cult leader, for example, will tell you you're wrong. But if you can hear, I need for you to be wrong. Because if you're confident, if you know you're right, you won't need me. You won't be dependent on me. You can go. And I don't want you to go. Because I need a lot of people to feed my ego or line my wallet or whatever it is. So I'm going to strip you of something by telling you that this message is about you, but it's not. It's about my need, not your inadequacy. Wow. So I'm wondering the next time you hear the phrase, just a thought for anyone listening and for you, if you can add in 
that manipulative piece that really she was making a statement about herself, not about you. I need you to not know yourself so I can control you. Yeah. That's a big difference. So you knew. I did because I would, I would often be like, what? how do I not know? I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I do, but I wasn't really allowed to say that openly. I would, I would be allowed to kind of like think that privately. And then I started to just really believe that I didn't know myself because I was being told that so often and any time that I would assert myself, I would be punished. And so what was the point? So I think that in that situation, I ended up also gaslighting myself out of trusting that I knew who I was to the point where I was nearly gone. I mean, I know that's a really strange thing to say about yourself, but I would be lying (laughs) if I was to say that I was totally there because I wasn't. Right. I mean, if you're punished for expressing how you really feel and you're told that you're wrong and also usually within groups like this, they will give examples of the C, right? Right. Especially when you fail. When you fail. Oh, I know. They love that. They love that. They love that way too much. I don't know if it's possible to describe this because this is pretty esoteric, but what is the experience like of being there, but not being there of just kind of being a bit of a shell or not having something internally register? What's that experience like? <sighs> I think it it definitely happened in stages and it got worse over time, but it felt very vacant and it felt numb. And I, I really just didn't have a lot of positive feelings. It was very much like a state of depression, but without awareness that you're depressed. Also, like you're just trying to survive but you don't realize that you're so depleted. It's a low point to be at. You're kind of a machine almost. I describe it a lot as feeling like a robot where I would just do what I needed to do because I was so afraid of whatever was going to happen. And that would change depending on like my abuser's mood. So I was really walking on eggshells most of the time. So I was I was definitely in a state of fear, heightened fight or flight, physically and emotionally just kind of vacant. And people used to describe me as a zombie and I would get so offended. <laughs> so I was like, I am not a zombie. And then I look back at myself, I'm like, holy shit, you're a zombie. But um, it's a feeling of kind of intermittent sense of yourself mixed in with this new person who you think you need to be. That's such a good phrase. The new person that you think you need to be. And that is true within cults. That's true within abusive relationships. Like I wasn't myself anymore. I didn't even have access to like, I mean, there were times where I did have access to my sense of humor, but I was really afraid to express just in general. I didn't want to do the wrong thing because there was so much pressure to be a certain way. Is that just pretty common with cults across the board that you've seen? Oh, well, yeah. You learn early on that individuality is not a value. And in fact, it will not at all work in your favor. So you will learn to be like the other people. And 
You will also learn based upon who is publicly shamed and for what, how you're then supposed to behave and you don't want to stand out and you don't want to do things differently um, because you don't want to be the next person who's mistreated in that way and looked at that way uh, and who's going to lose standing and have to climb back up out of that hole that was just dug for you. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So that's kind of how it felt for me for many years, but more specifically when I was in DOS and, and that was the smaller, more controlling group within Nexium that was a master slave dynamic that really just imprisoned people more so than even Nexium or ESP. And so I think when I was in Nexium and ESP as a coach, I really thought that I was actually going somewhere, like excelling in my life and improving. I didn't realize that I was just kind of spinning my wheels and that the promotions that they were offering were totally arbitrary. They were not uh, they were not measurable. They were not based on merit, like we were being told. So that really does affect your self-esteem and your sense of capacity and self-worth. Like I honestly really believed that I could not take care of myself in the world. I was incapable and that I didn't know how to do things. And that out of this context of Nexium and ESP, I was really terrified. And I think that they installed a lot of those fears into us on purpose because they wanted it to be like, the ESP world versus the outside world and the outside world was bad and backwards and had it all wrong and you know it was superficial and whatnot and then the inside world of Nexium had it all together and that we were superior and so that was like the mentality but at the same time the people within it were you know like myself either in debt to the company or severely broke or just kind of giving their lifeblood to this organization so that they could be involved. And that was myself. I've had to really unlearn a lot of those beliefs. But once again, I still feel that remnants of insecurity of like, can I handle this? Can I do this? Am I capable? And I now, you know, I'm sitting here in my guest house that I rent in Los Angeles. And I look at everything in my home. And I'm like, wow, I did all of this. I did all of it. And It's kind of like I have to really, really slam that idea in my face over and over again to the point where I actually am allowed to believe that I'm capable and that I can handle a lot of things. And that even though I'm not like, you know, a typical sort of girl that (laughs) goes through her 20s, I had a kind of like an unusual track. (laughs) I took a wrong turn and now I'm back. But I, I do think that it's nice for me to just allow myself to recognize my accomplishments because it reminds me of my capacity and my resilience. Whereas I have spent a lot of time pointing out all of the things that were wrong with me and incapable and needed fixing. And that I felt this permanent hole inside of me that was never going to be resolved. That really was planted and grown by Nexium. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And that if I look at myself before that, sure, I felt insecurities and I had, you know, things that I couldn't do and whatnot and areas where I felt 
stunted and things like everybody else. But I didn't think that I had this hole inside of me that was forever going to cause me problems. And they referred to that as an inner deficiency. That's something that I've come to learn that that's a really common tactic for cults is to create an incurable problem that only they can fix. So that's just been a major red flag. Like if there's anybody that is trying to do that to you, open your eyes. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to India. I can't wait for you to hear the rest of my conversation with her. It's so interesting to speak with her because she's one of these people so open to discussing what's on her mind and also how things have been transforming in her mind and things have been revelatory that when we talk, she shares ideas with me about things that she has come to realize. And you can also sense that she's realizing things as we're talking. So there is something that feels very much in real time when talking with her. And so I really appreciate her ability to kind of welcome us into her thought processes. And there's something that she talked about where when she was in DOS, she had to deal with giving collateral, blackmail collateral, you know, taking pictures of private parts of your body and sending them to the leader, etc. So when we think about this, of course, it makes me cringe. Uh, every cell of my body <laughs> feels how wrong that is. But you wonder why it is that people do it in the moment, why they say, okay. Sometimes they don't say, okay, right away. But sometimes when other people there are doing it, you don't want to be the only one not doing it. Because again, like we talked about, you don't want to be singled out. You don't want to be kind of having the spotlight shine in your eyes in a horribly negative way. And so you go along. It's also often perverted in this way where it's seen as a symbol of strength that you are capable of doing these things, willing to do these things, brave enough to do these things. So you feel like it's sending a message to the leadership about you and you're sending a message to yourself about you. But all the while, just as it was clear talking to India and clear when I talked to countless other people, there's something inside while you're doing this that is trying to inform you about how wrong it is. And even if it's a little whisper of a voice and it's just saying, hmm, I don't think so. Those are the times you really want to listen. You want to listen to the doubt. And cult leaders, controllers, will often tell you that doubt is an evil thing that you're not supposed to have any kind of reaction in any negative way to something that's happening in the group. I think that's why a group like Scientology ha has this kind of way of demonizing what they call the reactive mind. 
but the reactive mind is your reaction to things. It's the way you inform yourself about something being right or wrong, uncomfortable, etc. And so having it be demonized that you are kind of reacting naturally adds to this whole detachment from the self that we talked about. What is also interesting is how many people found that after leaving a relationship with a controller, after leaving a cult, they had shared much more information than they ever planned to about themselves, much more that was private, much more that was shameful, much more that they had never shared with anyone else. But also, after a while, what they came to realize was they were the only ones sharing. The people who had asked them these questions often weren't the ones also sharing things about themselves to that degree. The leaders don't disclose that level of information. They're not pushed to say the things that would make them feel shame, the secrets they've never told anyone. So when you are needing to write something to show that you are all in and that you are willing to say the thing that really is uncomfortable, think for a moment, is this something the leader needs to do too? Is this something my partner needs to do too? If I have to disclose information, if I have to send photos of my body, if I have to send emails berating other people in my life, telling my family members I hate them, accusing them of abuse, etc., because the person in charge sort of has convinced me that that is true. And also by expressing it that way, I'm showing my independence and my adulthood and my strength. Is this something the leader is doing also? And is this something my narcissistic partner is doing also? Nine times out of 10, I'd even say 9.9 times out of 10. It's never going to happen that you are sharing less than the person controlling you or that you're even sharing or disclosing, revealing in equal measure to the person controlling you. So ask yourself if it's fair, if you're asked to do something that they don't ask of themselves, or if you ask them, they would just, you know, say, of course not. Of course, I'm not going to say that. Of course, I'm not going to do that. But you also want to ask them what they need this information for or what they need for you to do this for. And if it keeps coming back to you that somehow you need to do this because it's a way to show your strength or it's a way to show that you're powerful or it's a way to show that you're brave enough to do it, that's not a good enough reason. That's just a pep talk. And that's just encouragement. And that's a way to shift and kind of refocus your mind away from your internal discomfort, away from that voice inside of you that is saying, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to do this. I don't know really if I should be doing it. Know also that in this day and age, whatever you put out there in the public, in the public's eye, whatever you send digitally, etc., it's there forever. So the choices that you make now are the choices that could impact you for a very, very, very long time. 
I want to also say that sometimes the legal system does not know how to handle some of these issues very sensitively. And I want to put out there for the women who were involved in the trial, I really feel for what you had to go through because some of this collateral, some of these photos of women's private parts was put up on a screen in the courtroom as evidence, but for everyone to see and kept up there for a long time, for an uncomfortably long time. And for what reason? In fact, I don't think there was the need for that in such a public way and for such a long period of time. It added to the shame for a lot of people, for a lot of the women. And so think about what you're putting out there because it's going to be used against you, but it also might be used insensitively and carelessly, even by the people who are trying to help you. So be mindful of what you share and why you share it and with whom. That's always your choice. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.